From the Gospel of John 17, 20 through 26. Jesus prayed for his disciples and then he said, I ask not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. As you, Father, are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, so that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become completely one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that those also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory, which you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Righteous Father, the world does not know you, but I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made your name known to them, and I will make it known, so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. I know what some of you are thinking. It's really hot in here. Some of you are thinking that it's starting to make you see and hear things. Was D. Stone actually speaking in tongues? No, Reverend Stone was reading in English. It's just a very tongue-twistery text. And yes, it is warm in here. Our building and grounds director has a subtitle. He's also our dragon slayer. He is in the bowels of the church slaying a dragon now, trying to help with our chiller fix. So I apologize. Do this all you want. No one will be offended. And do you mind if I use these every now and again? I feel proper when I do that, so I might just do that for my sake. Friends, I just I had a hard week. And I'm going to take this opportunity to share something personal. My dad's brother, who is only 57 years old, has been on life support all week long. Um, the doctors, there's so many different things that, that just kind of fell onto his body at once, and they can't figure it out. And so um, would you say some prayers in your personal prayer time for my Uncle Mike? Uh, his son gets married next week, uh, and then they have a grandbaby coming at the end of the month, and so it's been personally hard. Um, and also, you know, like you, I am still feeling emotionally the um, terrible tragedy that happened in Virginia Beach. And I know that you stand with me in prayer for those who victimized. And you, like me, are probably saying, how long, O oh Lord, another one of these terrible acts of violence? Um, because I feel heavy, let's, let's turn to God in prayer together before we think about this text together. Gracious and merciful God, we're thankful for the life that you have given us, and we confess that we haven't always done well with that good gift. We believe and we confess with our mouths that you have sent your Son Christ to reconcile us with yourself. When we walked astray, you have gone so far to still bring us into union with you. Thank you. We confess and believe as well that you sent your Holy Spirit to be a guide, friend, and advocate, to cultivate in us a desire for your kingdom, to make us a community of care. We're so thankful for these gifts that you have given. 
God, send freshly your Holy Spirit now for you and I know that without you I can do nothing. And we pause before thinking any more about this prayer from the word, the mouth of your son Christ. We pause to ask for your help. Our world is sick. Bless those who have been affected by violence. Help us no longer to be violent. We ask your help. It is in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray and God's people say together. Amen. There was a young, precocious woman who had a dream. And in that dream, she was whisked away to the first century somewhere in Judea. She tried to survey her new surroundings. It was dusty. She could smell with every passing breeze goats, lambs, sheep. On a more merciful breeze, she could smell faintly the the slightest hint of citrus in the air. The sun kissed her skin. She observed people going about their business, milking animals, buying, selling, trading. Until she noticed just over yonder, there was a commotion. A large group of people had scattered and gathered, or not scattered, but gathered around someone. She heard Rabbi Yeshua. She went to go see what all the commotion was about. They were listening to the rabbi teach. As she got to the crowd, she wanted to press in and get further, and somebody, she thought they heard, they called him, she thought she heard them call him Peter, stop her and say, Rabbi Yeshua has to go. He only has time for one more. You choose. Would you like the rabbi to give you a teaching, to give you a word, or would you rather him pray for you? And she woke up. Some choice. What would you choose if you had some contemporaneity with Jesus and he said, I will give you one thing you get to choose. I will teach you or I will pray for you. What would you choose? Don't worry, you don't have to make that choice. In the Gospels, we have pages of the teachings of Jesus. And here in John 17, we even see him praying for you. Jesus is lifting not only the disciples of his own day up in prayer, but it extends to other disciples who would come after the first generation of Christians to include you and me. This is what is known as the high priestly prayer of John 17. It's so very wordy and and tongue-twistery to translate it. And Reverend Stone was reading it. I was watching many of you kind of just furl your brow, wondering if you were following along or if we made typos in the text. I and you and you and me and thee and we and she and who. It's like who's on first but in a holy writ. Though tongue-twistery, the message is relatively straightforward and simple. Jesus is praying for Christians to be united. Now, this should really jive with our church, and it should really jive with the tradition from which our church hails. You know, our tradition is the oldest American indigenous Christianity, and it's founded on the unity of Christians. We like to say things like, we're not the only Christians, we're Christians only. We also like to say, in essentials, unity, in opinions, liberty, 
and all things love. We just want to be Christians. And this church was carved out of that tradition as it sought to understand itself. It called itself a cathedral for the city where the doors were open to people. It didn't matter who you were, what background you were from, you were invited and welcomed here. You wanted to be a uniting force for people in this community. We should be excited about this prayer from the heart of Jesus. But I peered out into the world a little bit this week. I bet you did too. And I I noticed we're not very united, not even us in the church. I mean, our own tradition has found ways to slice the pie up three ways at least. We're not very united. The world has ways of forming cracks in our unions. Do you know why we have a hard time being united as Christians? This past winter, we had a retreat speaker at our leadership retreat named Professor Ted Smith from Candler, and he's working on a project thinking about the rise of secularity, the decrease in church attendance across the country. He, he is thinking along the same lines as philosopher Charles Taylor or my Dr. Vater or a guy named Andy Root. There's a lot of thinkers talking about the decline of a particular era of our history. They're talking about the decline of the age of voluntary association. What does that mean? Well, if you will allow me, America was built on voluntary association. What do you mean still? Okay. Professor Smith was telling us that when America was uh, starting in 1776, uh, he told us that only 11% of the Americans were members of a church. We would think it's 100 or 90%, but only 11% of the citizens of America were members of a church. And the reason why is because back then we didn't have a thing called membership of church. You know, in the old world, churches usually were attached to the state or the crown, and you didn't kind of pick the church you wanted to go to. There was a church plopped down into your community, and you were considered to be part of its parish, and that's kind of where you went. You probably didn't even pay a tithe for it. It was probably funded by the state itself. This is still actually happening in most European countries. But in America, something new was happening with our founding. We said to each other, hey, we kind of all agree on the same kind of stuff. Let's get together and let's form a church or let's form another voluntary association, whether it's the DAR or a country club or Kiwanis or the Elks Lodge or whatever club it is. We think we can get together on our own and organize ourselves. Now, this was a revolutionary idea, and I know it sounds really mundane to us. That's because we were born into generations of it. But Professor Smith showed us how Alexis de Tocqueville, when he came to survey America and go back and tell the Europeans what he saw, de Tocqueville said this, and I'm going to paraphrase in my speak. I can't believe these Americans. They have the gall to think that they can get together and form groups and clubs all on their own without some powerful force to support them like the crown. How are they even going to do it? It was unique and new, and it's part of the DNA of this country And so we form these voluntary associations like church and the like. Well, the truth of the matter is, is that age, that era is slowly in decline. Every voluntary association society is in decline in our country. 
I know there are some churches that grow and some country clubs that grow, but across the board, these types of organizations are not doing well. So say the experts. And so it's easy for us to sit in our pews today and go, you know, I don't know why we're not united, but we, we, we used to, back in the good old days, we, we used to be a lot better about this. People knew where to be on Sunday morning, and the restaurants weren't open on Sundays. We used to, you know what, and people knew, they knew decorum. They knew where to be on Sunday morning. Churches were filled, and a lot of people, everybody went. Being an American and a Christian, it went hand in hand like peanut butter and jelly. But were we really more united then? I'm not so sure. One of my favorite short story writers is Norman MacLean. He has an autobiographical tale that you've probably seen or heard the movie called A River Runs Through It. It's not about fly fishing. It's really about not understanding why some people do what they do. It's about family. It's about loss. Norman's father was a proud Scottish Presbyterian minister in Missoula, Montana, and he sent his son off to the University of Chicago. After he came back with a degree, his son went to some jazz club and met some beautiful young flapper, and he brought her home to introduce her to, her, to his father. This was to be the woman that he was going to propose, and his father says, well, is she a Presbyterian? Norman says, no, she's a Methodist. And Norman says, Methodists are just Baptists that can read. Now, you probably have four or five different denomination jokes in your head rolling around. We can tell them about any one of us. But in the good old days, were we any more united? No. We had ways of drawing lines in the sand and marking us in some way against them or different than, different agendas, different points of view. Professor Smith said, replacing this age of voluntary association, and we're seeing the increase of it, is what he calls, and philosophers like Charles Taylor called, the age of authenticity. That may sound strange, but I want you to, to, to hear this phrase. I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. How many of you, by a show of hands, have heard that phrase before? The not religious but spiritual is a sign of this age of authenticity. It means that the person saying it has a sense of sacredness somewhere, a desire for connectivity, maybe even a personal devotion to even Jesus, but it's, it's so personalized. It's detached from organizations and institutions and commitments to other people. The age of authenticity is supremely focused on the individual's brand, their choices, their personal expressions. Professor Smith taught me one that I hadn't heard before. Instead of being uh, spiritual but not religious, he says we have a whole lot of people who are religious but aren't spiritual, people who know how to do the good work of stuff pertaining to the church but don't have interest in prayer or study or even worship. They do religious things, but they're not actually connecting their heart to God because we find our own personal expression of how we wish to do it. You know, there's a, there's a lot to be said about that that's terrifying and, frankly, annoying for ministers. <laughs> this age of authenticity becomes a hard one in which to grow or to have commitment. But there is at least one good thing going for it. The age of authenticity seems to 
cut through the hypocrisy of institutions. It seems to say no to old, rigid, and tired organizations and power structures. Well, I don't know why I'm going on and on. You're in church. You're in church in the 21st century. You're somewhere in the spectrum between these two mindsets. I think we probably better ask ourselves another question. What, what are some other ways that we've burdened ourselves with the task of unity? Or say it another way, why is unity so hard in the church? Well, I think another thought is that it, it, it's the thought of tribalism. Tribalism is present everywhere in the human condition, whether we're tribes in the bush or whether or not we're associating with a modernistic tribe of, I don't know, college football fandom. We have ways of talking about us and talking about them. The logic of tribalism is founded on the idea of a common enemy, and it's powerful because there's hardly any more powerfully unifying thing than having a common enemy but this isn't good for the church. You might say, well, why can't we just, you know, draw the tribal boundary around this building and just include everyone who's in, in, and think about everyone else's out? We'll be fine. Then we'll be this holy vessel for God here in this rough, rough world. Well, the logic is, is so supremely powerful and potent Tribalism is like, is like an acid. It, it erodes the, the cup, the vessel that it's in. If we have it, we'll never rid ourselves with it. We'll endlessly divide. You may not have whole groups of people being against one another, but you'll find groups of two or three finding ways to make an other out of someone else, whether we agree with them or don't or like them or not. It constantly divides. There's another difficulty on the path to Christian unity, and it is that <clears throat> we tend to unite based on good things, but not necessarily the best thing. That's to say, it's really easy for us to hold hands on mountaintops, but when we're in the valley, we tend to scatter like roaches when the light comes on this way, that way. I was once called for church pulpit supply when I was in seminary. Pulpit supply is this, or, is this thing that happens with schools like mine where um, small churches without pastors or when their pastor goes on vacation, they call up the school and say, hey, can you send someone out to preach? Well, I was called to this little country church. It was a beautiful building. It was built during the Civil War. And it was old and, and lovely, and it wasn't like a modern box. It was just kind of nice. But my parents and I walked in it, and we realized it wasn't being managed or kept well. It was crumbling all around, and speaking of roaches, they were about to, and I tried to prepare myself um, privately, and then the song leader came in, and she looked at my mom, and she said, boy, you're dressed too nice. It was a real welcoming lot of people. And my mom goes, oh, this is just what I wear to church. And immediately, I take off my blazer, take off my tie, roll up my sleeves. And she says, um, <clears throat> well, here's the songs we're going to sing, preacher. Started telling me the song. Okay, okay. And he said, tell me more about your congregation. I, I've really tried hard to come up with a nice message, and I want to I bring something that will help the life of this church today. And she said, oh, we don't care what you say. She said, say some stuff, say a prayer, let's get out of it. Oh, okay. And she said, you know, we're just here to keep the doors open. 
It was like 10 people that show up to this church every week, and they verbally state, we're just here to keep it open. Their unity was based on the desire to keep a historic building open. This was a church that had fallen in love with its methods more than its mission and forgotten not the good thing of a building, they forgot the greater thing of God's mission, of how they're supposed to impact their society, their community, and they were dwindling, and they're, da- they're dead now. Now, at this point, I must admit that I have failed to speak fully on the point of Jesus' prayer. I said it was the unity of Christians, but I want to remind you that it's the unity of Christians in Christ, and it's to participate in the kind of unity that we see in the divine life, the unity between God the Father and God the Son. That's, that's to say this, the kind of unity we should strive for is one that is dynamic. It's based on self-giving. I have part of my life because you've given part of yourself, and you have part of your life because I've given part of myself. And it's this wonderful dynamic of self-giving and receiving. It means finding the kind of unity where where we know that our fates are really bound together, where we are knit together, where where your sorrows become my my sorrows and, and my successes become your successes. It's the kind of unity that is burden bearing. Think about it. God the Son bore the burden of the Christ for the will of God the Father. It is bearing the burden of one another. We were meant for each other radically. Now, don't get too worried about that word radical. Its Latin root means to go back to the source. So let's go back to the source of all things. We have a picture of being made to be together for each other, to strengthen and uplift each other, to walk with each other, to bear each other's burdens, to rejoice with each other. We're made to delight in one another. We are made to be together. And so, friends, whatever roadblock we see toward unity, we must overcome. We must continue on. We must gather. We must gather up all that we can muster in love come together around a table. If what I'm saying seems a bit too esoteric, let me start simply with this. To unite, to unite and fulfill the prayer of Jesus Christ's own heart might mean that we look at each other first as a gift, not as a threat. We look at each other and don't see threats, but gifts. Can you look at each other and see the gift of God that that person is right before you? If you can, you can get forward a little bit more towards fulfilling this dream and heart prayer of God that we would be unified in love. Bless you.